Hey guys, welcome back to the Girls Gone Wild podcast. Thank you so much for resubscribing and joining our show this week. You know, I thought I'd just continue the discussion around intuitive eating because, well, I have a cool story to tell you, but Claire and I are really focused on this time of year and how we are bombarded with messages about diet culture, especially around the holidays, just because everyone's like, okay, how not to gain weight during the holidays? We've all seen the messaging. It's ridiculous. So um, our lovely listener, Audrey, reached out and she was like, hey, I know you talk a lot about intuitive eating, but I'm a therapist and I work in the intuitive eating world and I would like to be on your show if you would have me. So welcome, Audrey. Is it Stefano? Stefano. Stefano. So close. It's so close. It's totally fine. You're not the first person. Give the listeners, and I just love this because this is a perfect example of like people just reaching out and be like, I have a passion about this. I want to talk about it. And we're like, great, let's connect. So this is like the first time that we've actually talked. And so it's just like a fun, I love this part of being in the community of podcasting and Girls Gone Wad. And this is Joy and Claire is that we could get to meet cool people like you. So give the listeners a quick bio of you and the work that you do. Yeah. So I currently live in Boston. Um, I went to grad school um, up here in Boston to get my master's in social work. Um, I, for a pretty long time, knew that I wanted to be in the counseling world. I didn't quite know what that would look like. Um, And it ultimately got me into the social work field in particular. And I always had a passion for in very broad terms, body image and wanting to work with um, folks around being able to kind of navigate their uh, relationship to body and body image. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do with that. Um, Fast forward to grad school, I actually ended up realizing that there were so many different areas of counseling I could go into. So I actually started out working with the addiction field and addiction recovery Um, So I, once I graduated grad school, I went into a local hospital system nearby and got started working in an inpatient detox facility on their addiction recovery program. Um, From there, I stepped down to working in their like outpatient partial partial hospitalization program for addiction recovery. Um, And there I did see, you know, a handful of folks with eating disorders and um, those two diagnoses of eating disorders and addiction can um, be quite common with obviously many other diagnoses as well. Um, And at that point in my kind of career, I knew that I still really felt passionately about eating disorders and body image. I just didn't quite do anything with it yet. Um, And then I discovered intuitive eating um, on my own. And it, I, I don't really identify as a person that has a lot of light bulb moments in life or feeling like I did this one thing and everything changed, but it really felt like intuitive eating was actually a moment that not even a moment, but I just very vividly remember discovering it and feeling like it really did change the trajectory of my relationship to food and body. Um, and for me, that was incredibly impactful, not only in the work that I do now, obviously, but also in my own sort of personal history with disordered eating in my past. And it really just connected so many dots for me. So after learning about it and after getting into it, I realized that there was the option to become a certified intuitive eating counselor. So I pursued that. And in the midst of pursuing that, I um, found a job opportunity at an eating disorders agency based out of the Boston area. So I ended up transitioning out of the addiction recovery world, and I'm now an outpatient therapist at a 
organization based here in Newton, Massachusetts, called the Multi-Service Eating Disorders Association. And we are a nonprofit organization that really sort of harps on education around eating disorders, empowerment around treatment for eating disorders, and um, allowing sort of services and access to care for people struggling with eating disorders and their loved ones too. Um, so I work as an outpatient therapist in that regard, working with clients um, with eating disorders or disordered eating. And I'm also a certified intuitive eating counselor. So I do sort of weave that into my work as I see fit and as it's appropriate um, and do some kind of um, uh, conversations around it on our Instagram over um, through my organization. Um, so I do have a lot of conversations over there as well, but have integrated the work into my uh, work with independent with uh, individual clients and then with group therapy work as well. So for listeners who I know this comment comes up often is that people will think they have a struggle with eating or something that might not be as serious enough quote unquote serious to right. get treatment for it. Right. But what are the, I guess, warning signs or things that people should be looking at to say, maybe I need to go into treatment for this or um, seek counseling for it, period. Because outpatient is what it sounds like. You're not in a treatment facility. You're right. just going in to get counseling sessions. Uh, partial hospitalization looks like, like a half day treatment plan. Uh, so I think that when we think of getting treatment for eating disorders, we think of just being hospitalized or like a residential program. So can you talk really briefly just around the levels of care? Sure. Yeah, sure. So when we think of levels of care, sort of starting at the top, right, you have that kind of most intensive level of care, which I think is, I guess, like kind of a stereotypical treatment that we think of, right? Like the media portrays it a lot this way, or again, right, you see it like in of, the movies. Yeah. And I think it actually applies to, to my what I've seen in the addiction world too. It's like any, you know, treatment when people think of addiction is like, oh, rehab. And it's like, well, okay, there's other levels of care too. And there's other forms of treatment where it's not just going to someplace where it's often like the hills of LA and it's like a luxury treatment. Like it's, treatment can come in so many different forms and really helpful and beneficial treatment can come in so many different forms. But I digress. Most intensive levels of form of care for eating disorders, right, start at inpatient level of care, which is really when we're thinking about like medically having to stabilize someone um, where there could be really significant medical complications in the context or due to their eating disorder. Um, so this is when we think of things like heart conditions that can be really common, um, abnormal like EKG scans that can happen for folks with significant clinical eating disorders, um, any esophageal issues that could be really significant in light of kind of purging behaviors, obviously significant um, low weight and malnourishment from a clinical perspective, and that that is not um, sustainable for someone in a body, particularly in a, you know, a growing and adult body. Um, and this is when, again, inpatient is really about stabilizing the person. Um, if they're significantly mal malnourished, if there's a feeding tube that has to happen, if there's other ways of making sure that this person just gets nutrients into them so that they can begin working on weight restoration and really just for really intensive nutritional rehabilitation reasons. Um, so that is kind of the most intensive level of care. And then the next, again, very intensive level of care would be what we talk about as residential level of care. So this would be a level of care where the person may not need necessarily to medically stabilize before going into this level of care, but it's still quite intensive in that 
it is anywhere, you know, 30 days minimum of care for someone where they are in a facility um, and that's where they're getting 24 hours, seven days a week wraparound care for their eating disorder and often for other, you know, mental health conditions that could be present too. Um, but right, 30 days is, is minimum, if not more, depending on a number of factors, level of um, severity of symptoms. Insurance, of course, is, is always a, another factor, depending on if someone's using that. Um, and just sort of the progression of their eating disorder treatment and recovery. Um, so residential is, again, that 24-7 level of care where they're getting regular groups, daily groups, regular milieu where they have access to different um, milieu counselors or clinicians, psychiatrists, all those different providers, um, individual therapy on a regular basis. There could be family therapy involved. Um, so really, again, pretty intensive level of care. And then when we get into outpatient level of care, it can sort of start out with like more intensive outpatient options and then the kind of quote unquote standard outpatient options. So partial hospitalization level of care um, or PHPs are, as you were saying earlier, right, like those half day programs where you are typically going into a program for anywhere, and this is just a generalization, but like anywhere from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., let's say. So I almost think of it of like, you're going to school, sort of, of Monday through Friday, and you're in this intensive program. With eating disorders, there's a big component around, around meal support. So the person in a PHP with an eating disorder is doing two meals a day in PHP, so typically like a breakfast and lunch, where they're getting meal support and that they are eating with the other patients or clients in the program, and they're getting support in the moment from other clinicians who are helping them or other dietitians who are in the program as well. Um, they're also, again, getting regular group therapy and in uh, individual therapy as well. Again, family therapy could be a component of that as well. And then the step down from partial level of care is what we call an IOP or an intensive outpatient program. And that is just, right, what I said, like a step down from PHP where it's not five days a week. Um, it could be three days a week. If it is five days, it's still a significantly reduced number of hours. So typically an IOP is like three hours at a time. Um, and IOP is typically the level of care that is the, and I hate framing it this way, but in terms of a intensive program, it's like the least intensive option because it's only for typically a couple of days a week and only for a couple of hours at a time. That said, an IOP really does serve a purpose if there is someone that cannot swing their work schedule and committing to intense treatment. If there's someone that can't afford to give up childcare or find, you know, alternative childcare. Um, and still be in treatment. So an IOP really does still serve a purpose for a lot of different folks in that way and does offer that flexibility, which can be nice, right? Where you can still maybe do your work nine to five and do program at night. Um, and then after IOP is when we think of that standard outpatient care. And with eating disorder treatment, kind of the best practice is typically having um, an interdisciplinary team of providers, which means you have an individual therapist who you do one-on-one -on -one talk therapy with. You have a dietitian who is someone that walks you through meal planning, snack planning, um, working on making sure you're hitting all the different kind of food groups and different nutrients or what, what have you, depending on your personal body and your personal um, preferences. They can also do a little bit of counseling too around continuing to kind of challenge eating disorder thoughts, but they're really going to be kind of focused on the food itself and strategizing with that. Um, a psychiatrist can be helpful for those who need some med management pieces, whether they 
need medications related to, you know, psychiatric um, illness or if there's any other um, meds that they're on that they could have someone to kind of manage and, and walk them through dosages. And then a primary care provider is always, always super important with eating disorder treatment as well to have a medical provider that is um, a part of the conversations even if they're not eating disorder trained or informed, to have them a part of the conversations around, you know, how the person's doing in treatment, are they weight restored yet, how they're, you know, managing meals and snacks, um, and of course with lab work, because that can be a big piece of it to have a primary care involved is super important in that regard too. And again, as I've mentioned with other programs, um, family therapy can sometimes be a part of it depending on the age of the person and just the appropriateness of, of having a family therapist depending on their situation. Um, but that's kind of the the levels of care, I guess. And that wasn't quite a nutshell, but those are the levels of care. Yeah, but that's really good for people to know, too, especially if they are entering into some type of treatment program or if they've been recommended to that. And typically, how are patients referred to you? Yeah, so they can either, what's cool is they can either just refer themselves, which is, I think, sort of um, people are kind of often like surprised of that. Like, oh, I can just email or call and just ask if I can start getting involved with your treatment services. So they can do that by either emailing our, our general info box or calling us. Oftentimes, because there's quite a number of adolescents, there could be parents or caregivers that also end up being the ones calling. We don't require any type of formal referral process. You don't need a primary care to do it. You don't need a therapist to do it. Of course, that can be helpful if there is maybe collateral information. But the neat part is that if you are someone, and I can't tell you the number of people that sign up for and schedule themselves for what's called like an assessment, where we do an hour-long conversation with them that's a really thorough and detailed assessment around eating disorder history, mental health history, family history, substance abuse history, all the different components. And then they do it and they say, you know, I don't even know if this is a, an issue, or I don't even know if I qualify as having an eating disorder. Order. I just kind of feel like something's up and I just want to get things checked out. And oftentimes those conversations never lead to like, okay, you're good. And we just send you on your way, right? Like there's always a really good reason probably why you're looking for help and why you're saying, hmm, something doesn't quite feel so right. And usually by the end of those conversations, it's a lot of talk around additional resources that can be helpful. Um, if they need treatment providers in their life, like they don't have a therapist or a dietitian, we're happy to help out with that. But it's I've never had a case where someone schedules an assessment and there's, you know, quote unquote, nothing to work on or nothing that they really need help with. That's just never been the case. Yeah, it's I, I like that you kind of went through all the levels of care because I think people really uh, aren't sure, A, just how that works, but also... You can even just enter into a therapy relationship with somebody, with a therapist, and a therapist could refer you, or you can actually call an eating disorder treatment center yourself. Yeah. And I think that's really good to know that there are levels and there are professionals who do that assessment and determine what level of care is appropriate for you. So really? I kind of wanted to just do a brief rundown of that. I'm going to skip around just a tad bit because I want to really dive into the topic of intuitive eating just because we've been talking about this so much over the past few months, uh, the relaunch of this podcast with one of the therapists, Molly Barr. Yeah. And I think it's really important to keep talking about it just because we've been so trained by the diet culture, um, mm. that I wanted to talk with you specifically, just because this is your passion and you have experience with this, 
uh, with intuitive eating is the process of habituation and the honeymoon phase when we're trying to make peace with all foods. So Molly mm-hmm. really walked us through the basics. I should say basics. It's not basic, but yeah. just the, the quick and dirty about yeah. what intuitive eating is. So if you all, if you want to go back and listen to those episodes, you can kind of get caught up on what we're, what we're expanding on. But talk specifically about that piece, because I think I want our listeners to hear more about as you're working through it and also maintaining it, what does this look like? and how can we help people grasp this concept? Yeah, yeah. So sort of the nuts and bolts of it um, that Molly had talked about in your discussion with her, right, are that the, is that the habituation phase is this process through which when we're working on the principle of making peace with foods, and this means all foods, right, As, assuming that you don't have some type of significant allergic reaction to them or significant adverse reaction to foods, all foods fit. Um, so when we're working on trying to create more peace and a more peaceful relationship with foods, we often experience, people often experience a lot of significant distress and anxiety about, but how do I get to a place where I'm at peace with such and such fear food that I've had off limits for the past however many months or years? And the process of habituation is where we continually expose ourselves to a food. And in this case, it's often like a fear food or like a a previously off limits food for the person where the more that we expose ourselves to eating that food, the more that we give ourselves permission to eat it whenever, the more that we go through this process where the novelty of the food wanes, the more that we expose ourselves. So it's almost like this inverse relationship with the more that we expose ourselves, the novelty and kind of the the bright and shininess of it wears off. So or even maybe like the um, sorry to interrupt you, maybe kind of like the uh, what's the word I'm looking for, like the negativity towards it goes away. Yes. Well, and the negativity and like totally like underneath that is like the realization that there's no need for negativity towards this food because my body knows what to do with it and I can be trusted to eat it and be okay. There isn't going to be, you know, all of this tend to have a lot of like catastrophizing thoughts around what's going to happen if I eat this food in X amount of quantity, but right, that there's no negativity that needs to be involved with it because it's just a food and we can treat it as any other food that is a part of our diet that we're eating on a regular basis. The like best uh, analogy, I guess, that I give people when we're thinking about the habituation phase and the honeymoon phase in particular is thinking about like the actual honeymoon phase when you enter into a new relationship, right? Where it's like you love this person or you really like them. You just want to spend all your time with them. They're so great. Everything's just bliss. Everything and is happy. Bliss. And yes. Yeah, like there's flowers this person, and hearts and roses. Yeah, and... Like this person can pretty much do no wrong. Exactly. Like it's just, you know, everything that you've dreamed of. And then, you know, as time goes on, there are things that this person does that, you know, kind of bug you. And like, they have this really annoying quality. You still love them, but like the yeah, honeymoon like, phase is I didn't over. know they had that tattoo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or like, <laughs> oh, I didn't realize they like leave their dirty laundry all over the place, but like, it's fine. We're still, I still love you. And right. It's like the honeymoon phase is over. And it doesn't mean that your relationship is any less solid or that you don't love or like the person anymore. It's just the the luster and the bright and shininess of it is gone. And same thing with food of the more that we expose ourselves to these foods that in our mind are kind of on this pedestal of being again, bright and shiny, super novel, off limits. But the more that we keep them up there, the more that they have this 
false kind of caution tape around them in our minds. And the more that we can actually eat them and realize I can eat them, my body knows what to do with them, and I can eat them in whatever quantity I want and be okay, you know, the food that you're eating is just going to turn into a food that you eat like any other random day that you eat it. Um, So what happens is that that sort of heightened emotional reaction to that food eventually sort of like chips away over time. And what's really important about the habituation process, I think, too, is I think upon hearing this, right, it sounds really freeing, I think, for a lot of people like, wow, I would love to be in a place where I can be neutral and just peaceful with this food that I have told myself I can't have. And what's really important a part of the habituation process is not trying to like force yourself through the process. So there can be almost this like way of distorting the habituation process where we think, okay, if I just eat it enough, I'll become sick of it. And then I'll just never want it again. And perfect. I never have to like eat this food ever again. Sure. You're like forcing through it. Yeah. Yeah. So the more that you try to basically speed up the process of habituation, the more it's actually going to backfire. And that's going to be harder for you to make peace with the food because there's no timeline for how long it's going to take for you to, to go through habituation. I, I can't give a client like a number of days or weeks or months. I just can't. That's going to be dependent on you and this food. It's also a lot of the times predict, you know, dependent on their like dieting history, their disordered eating history too, but there's no number. And that, especially for this population can be really hard. There is no number. There's no hard and fast answer. It's just like feel your way through. That's, and that's really difficult for a lot of people, even if they don't have a clinical diagnosis of an eating disorder is just that um, the letting go and the trusting is really hard. We've just been taught that we cannot trust our bodies. We cannot trust our hunger. We talked about that with Molly and this, um, the habituation and the honeymoon phase, I can see people wanting to use it as something else to control. Meaning, well, let me just rush my throat way through this and I'm just going to eat all the fill in the blank food that has been taboo for so many years. And and I'm going to like push through that. So I can see how people could then misuse this tool. Right. Or yeah, trying to kind of manipulate it in a way again, where it's like, oh, if I just, you know, I guess another way that you can manipulate it too is If I just eat a lot of this food and get to a place where I've, you know, conquered my fear, quote unquote, great. And then I can cross off my to-do list and I'm done and I don't ever have to do it again. And it's like, well, no, you you eventually got to like eat that food again. You can't just cross it off. And, you know, let's say I'm, I'm going to give an example because this is a post I did for our, uh, for my organization's Instagram the other week, because I did an example of habituation as it applies to Halloween candy, because that was the holiday that we just celebrated. And right, like you can't just eat Halloween candy once and be like, great, I like conquered this and I ate the Halloween candy and it was really hard, but I did it like check. I've you know worked through making peace with this food. It's an ongoing process. And the, again, like there is no hard and fast timeline around how long that's going to take for you, but it's not a one and done deal. It is just a process. Yeah. I like that. Uh, I'll give my personal example is we had, we have a huge bag of Halloween candy still left over from Halloween. Yeah. And we didn't have as many trick-or-treaters. Now, in the past, I would have been like, get this out of my house. I can't have this around. I can't eat processed sugar or whatever. Um, Which, you know, to be fair, with some health issues, I'm trying to avoid it because for a health reason. Right. But I'm not completely like, get it out of my house. So I've kept the bowl of candy on our counter. And this is me just like patting myself on the back for all the, like how far I've come. Is I just... I eat it if it sounds good. Like I just am like, 
I'll go by and I'll be like, do I feel like, oh yeah, a little mini Twix or what, even if I ate five mini Twix, whatever, yeah. but just like, whatever sounds good, I'll pick it up and I'll eat it. And I'll be like, that's fine. Uh, no guilt, no shame. Yeah. And the other thing that I find just really hopeful for all of us is some of it doesn't sound good. Like there's certain candies in there that I'm like, ah, uh, the Milky Way just like sticks to my teeth, makes my teeth hurt. Yeah. Or I don't really love the peppermint patty thingies. Like, ah, uh, that doesn't sound good to me yeah. versus like just shoveling it in without thinking or just being like, oh, I've been so restrictive that I don't care what I'm eating. I'm just shoving it exactly. in my mouth. Exactly. And that is the difference of uh, and I'm not saying I'm like this enlightened being at all. I'm just saying no, like, but that, that is, is worth that is a, a pat shift. On the back. Yeah, that's a shift of being like, I can have this huge bowl of Halloween candy in my house now and not be like, get it out of my house. I can't be around it. Right. Uh, because it was a taboo food. And now I'm like, I just, I'm, uh, it's almost like I'm just playing this experiment to be like, can I just objectively look at this as like, it's just candy. Yeah. And my body knows what to do with it. And I'm listening to if I feel like eating it or not. Right. And I love that example because I think I know like for you, you're sort of like framing it and like, it's not really a big deal, but like, but that actually is a really big deal when we have really previously fraught relationships with food and the number of people that would listen to that example and probably be like, I want that. I want to be able to have a massive bowl of Halloween candy and not only not eat it because I'm telling my Myself to not eat it. It's not that it's, I just don't want it and I don't feel like it, but I have it if I want it. I mean, I can't describe to you how many people would see that as such a huge step for them. Those moments are so meaningful because as you said, you know that that wouldn't have always been the case for you in the past. And that is really important when you think about and reflect on your own journey with your relationship to food and eating. And how cool is it that you can realize through whatever steps you've taken, I've gotten to this place where it's just a bowl of candy. I can make the decisions about eating it or not eating it. And that is really cool. This week's sponsor is our favorite people, the makers of Ned. All right, guys, we've talked a lot about Ned in the past weeks. We hope that you will support the podcast by supporting Ned. You know, the CBD market has become very saturated over the last few years. I'm sure you've seen a bazillion ads for CBD. You can buy it in almost every coffee shop or grocery store. But many of the companies out there source their hemp from industrial farms in China. So be careful where you buy your CBD because just like with low quality alcohol, low quality CBD can have undesired effects. So we've really touted the products we've been using specifically. Mine is the Sleep Blend, which I still love and I stand by it. And I've been st starting to use just their, their CBD oil during the day. Most of you know that we turned Cadet in last week and I was having some really stressful days. So I was like taking that almost every single day, just trying to calm myself down. But we love this product. Claire, you've also been using this as well. Yeah, I love the de-stress blends. I just kind of use it throughout the evenings as needed to keep me off the cliff when it's bedtime. You know, it doesn't necessarily make the cliff go away, but it does help me take a few more steps back. So that's what I love about CBD is that it really just kind of like helps you manage your own mindset a little bit more easily. If you want to try the new de-stress blend from Ned, a brand that we love and trust, we have a special offer for our listeners. Every order over $40 qualifies for 15% off plus a free de-stress blend sample. Go to helloned.com forward slash joy or enter joy at checkout to take advantage of this offer. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash joy to get 15% off plus a free 
de-stress blend sample on any order over $40. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring our program and offering our listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. Thank you, Ned. Thank you to our listeners for supporting the brands that support our podcast. So for, for listeners, for people who are struggling, as we all are, I'm not saying, you know, I'm not singling anybody out, but I think we all can relate yeah. to some of this is, so what are the, what are the suggestions you would give to people? Is it just continue to expose with this habituation? And let me be clear too, that if you need to talk to a therapist, we'll always post resources in the show notes, but we're just talking about these concepts uh, individually as you're working through it, what is the, what are the encouragements? What are the things that you tell people to help them through this part? Yeah. So definitely if you have a team of providers, certainly please use them to whatever extent you need to, in terms of, I don't want to use this phrase, but I'm going to use this phrase of like, please use them to the extent you need to kind of hold your hand through the process. This is very new for so many of us. This is daunting to try to do it alone or to try to just attempt it on your own. So please use your resources like a therapist and or dietitian if you need it in those in the process of habituation and in trying to work through fear foods. Another kind of general, I guess, piece of advice with it too is in trying to kind of take a, you know, the first step in creating peace with food and attempting to work through this right honeymoon and habituation with a food is start with a food. Do not start with a group of foods. Like I want to, I want this to happen with carbohydrates. So I'm going to try it with all carbohydrates. Like don't start with that. You need to pick a very specific food that you know, you know, if it's, for example, a hamburger, like, is it a hamburger from a specific place? Or is it one that someone makes? Like be very specific about the challenge food that you want to make peace with. Um, because that way we can whittle it down to one step at a time. We don't need to, no pun intended, bite off more than we can chew and try to lump it into like, I want to work on all these different five foods that right. I want to You don't want to like flood the system. It's going to be totally. setting up to fail. You want to set up for success. Totally. So being able to kind of start small with that and build upon it with the understanding that again, once you've worked through some habituation and more peace with the food, it doesn't mean you just like cross it off and you never have to revisit it again. It's just like you've built a tolerance for being able to make more peace with that food and reach more of a kind of a neutral relationship with that food. And then you can kind of determine what's what's the next food that I want to work on. The other piece is also whether it's with your team or whether it's with any kind of trusted support that you have, if it's a partner or a friend or a family member or roommate of using the people that are supports in your life to just sort of process the process of working through habituation with, of being able to um, talk with people around what the experience is like for you to try to expose yourself to these foods again and eat them again and reintroduce them into your life. Is the support needed maybe sometimes when you're trying to kind of challenge this food? If there's someone that has a really kind of neutral relationship with food in your life, who would be there as a good kind of sounding board? And again, just a neutral person that doesn't have a super... Um, charged relationship with food either way, that can be super helpful with this process. Um, And just for the, for what it's worth of being able to talk about it so that you're not burdening all of the 
anxious and distressed thoughts around having this food on your own, but that you're being able to kind of process that with someone else that you feel comfortable with too. Thank you. So that's very helpful. Now let's talk briefly around the myths with intuitive eating. Yes, there's quite a few of them. Let us have it. Why don't you list like maybe two or two or three? Yeah. So the first one that comes to mind, like always, always when I think of what people think of intuitive eating is like, oh, right. So eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full. And that is not what intuitive eating is. It often gets misconstrued as as being that type of quote unquote diet. And in the first place, intuitive eating is not a diet. Um, But right, it does tend to kind of get colored as this mechanism by which you're only eating when you're hungry and just stopping when you're full. Number one with that is yes, honoring your hunger and feeling your fullness are two of the 10 principles of intuitive eating, but they are not intuitive eating as a definition, right? They are just two of the principles by which we work through intuitive eating with. And just to interrupt you really quick, as this reminds me of when I was talking with Molly around a lot of the influencers who've kind of um, co-opted this work of Evelyn Triple and Elise. Elise Rush, yeah. Yes, that I will see influencers all the time just being like, well, I'm just going to be intuitive eating or just let's focus on intuitive eating. And I, part of me wants to be like, so what are the 10 principles? Do you understand what that means? Oh my gosh, all the time, all the time. And it's too bad. I forget if it was in my supervision with Evelyn or if it was in one of her trainings when I was in the process of getting my certification, but it's too bad that her and Elise didn't get intuitive eating, like those two words trademarked because gosh, that would have made such a difference with the number of influencers out there who are like, let's just intuitively eat. And like, I'm an intuitive eater, like none of that. I mean, it would probably still happen, but like there would be a lot more, I think, rules around who could kind of toss that term around willy nilly. And I think it'd be less damaging. I think yes. it's so damaging. So damaging, especially when you're, yeah. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. I, and it, like, I say that with love, but they, they are just treating it like another diet and it could really just do some harm. It's unfortunate. Right. Yeah. So it it gets really, really hairy really quickly when people again, co-opt it and use it to describe like their way of eating, forget whatever hunger or fullness is is involved. I think it just has become this like hot button word and and influencers just kind of throw it in because it's a, a hot topic. But again, as you said, not knowing actually what they're talking about. So, right. It's not just about hunger and fullness. There are eight other principles that are involved. It's not just about, this can also, be sort of a subset of this myth is believing that it's only eating when you are perfectly, you know, the the ideal amount of hunger and then stopping exactly when you're at ideal amount of fullness. And that's also not intuitive eating because intuitive eating... It doesn't sound realistic either. It's not realistic, not at all. And intuitive eating is really the opposite of what so many of the clients that I see on a regular basis. It's so opposite of how they typically function from a mental standpoint in that it is the opposite of perfection and perfectionism. It is just a gray area that we're kind of just working through and sifting through and learning as we go along. So there is no ideal, you know, only eating when you're this level of hunger and stopping when you're this level of fullness, right? That's not realistic. That's not how life works. And if we go by that, that's going to set us up for a lot of disappointment because we're going to have so many more days than not where we're not hitting whatever the quote ideal hunger or fullness is. Um, There's a lot of times when we actually need to practice what's called like
like practical hunger where you know that you have, you know, an event to go to for several hours that you can't eat at, but you're not really hungry beforehand. But are you going to not eat for five hours and just wait until hunger is ravenously taking over you in the middle of the event? Or are you going to preemptively eat beforehand, even though you're not super hungry as a way to just take care of yourself and your body before going to that event, right? So you're not eating when you're perfectly quote unquote hungry, you're just doing it proactively so that you can manage and treat your body with respect and the nutrients that it needs before going to this longstanding event where you won't have access to food whenever you want it. So again, a, a kind of a realistic expectation of how hunger is not always perfect and neither is fullness either, right? It's not like with intuitive eating, you're always at this perfect level of fullness. Sometimes you are and sometimes you're not. And Right, or it sounds like you're just in such harmony. You're just yeah. listening to your body right. all the time right. and right. everything just runs so smoothly. It's like... No, because we're just messy, crazy humans. Yeah. And that's just not realistic. Right. Like big picture intuitive eating opens up the door for such a more, you know, peaceful relationship with food and flexible relationship. And I find that that carries out into other aspects of our life. But by no means is it something that once you have under your belt, life is just like you're in a blissed out namaste, like world. Right. You're, like you never have any issues yeah, ever again, right. with, especially with food. They all just go away. Right. They're all away. And then all the other issues you had two are away. And I think that's also such a like part of the diet culture too, right? Is if you just do X, Y, and Z, then you'll achieve this. And then that means that everything else is gone. 1,000%. You do X, Y, and Z. And that's why I'm like, this is why I think it's important to make sure we are just reiterating all of that, that this is not something that you can X, Y, Z through. No, definitely not something you can X, Y, Z through. And I always say too, like it is definitely not a linear process. So in two regards, one is that the principles aren't meant, they're called principles for a reason. They're not steps, right? You don't do like step one and step two, step, step three, and I get to step 10 and I'm done. It's not that. Um, but then number two, which I will like say again and again is again, it's just a process and it's not a one, two, three process. It's not the X, Y, Z. It is just kind of day in, day out, figuring it out, taking stock of what you're noticing about yourself food, your body, and taking that information with you. And you're the expert of your body. So that's, that is the most important information that you get to kind of make, make light of and make sense of. When you're talking about it, it reminds me a lot about the stages of grief of how we talk a lot about maybe just, let me just say the process of grief because stages is, can be limiting, but just how grief works yes. is very much how this sounds where you just kind of have to be like, everyone's different. It's going to come in and out of your life in different times. It may sneak up behind you and surprise you. You know, there's yeah. a lot of parallels that I'm seeing with how I talk to clients about grief. And this is very much like this, just making sure that people are being kind to themselves. And I say that without trying to sound too cheesy, but I know, I know. Because it's really important to understand this is not like a, okay, next time we just want a roadmap so bad to not feel crappy anymore. And we just, that it's, that's not how it works. Yeah. I'm sorry. Right, right. And I'm so glad you brought that up because, right, there are so many parallels between this and the stages of grief. And there's actually, for a lot of people, a lot of grieving in the process of intuitive eating so much grieving right. that's what i was thinking too i'm like there's probably a lot of parallels with just grief so and much. letting go and letting go of a lot of expectations or a lot of negativity or a right. lot of i wish i could look like this yeah. and i just want to make peace with my body yes. and yeah yeah I can see that. so much grief with intuitive eating and so much grief with eating disorder recovery too 
um, that that is a huge, uh, huge piece to work through um, in visual therapy and maybe with your dietitian. All right. So the one thing that I really want to finish with in regards to, to, to intuitive eating is how people can take those tiny steps to open up their time, their mind, their life to doing more than just focusing on food? How do we start to take the grip off of that focus? Because I think that's really hard to do. It's almost like you're just trying to pry your claws off of controlling. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So one thing that I always come back to, and I know that I think in your most recent conversation with Molly, I think she had touched on as well, is coming from a value standpoint. So like acceptance and commitment therapy does a lot with this ACT. But at the end of the day, I really use values a lot in my conversations with folks around using values as something that can help drive and motivate your behaviors when every day is your chance to make these decisions and these choices. And within every day, guess what? You eat multiple times a day. So you have many opportunities to make make the next best choice for you and your body and your recovery. So even if you don't get it right at one meal or snack, you've got plenty of more opportunities to keep doing that. So I love bringing in values for the pure um, motivational sort of element that they can bring when someone is still really struggling with, you know, the clause of diet culture that still feels like they're really caught on to or the food policing thoughts that they're having that are still feeling deeply hard, especially maybe now that we're approaching holiday season or we're spending more time with family of using like, what is important to me at the end of the day? And how do I want to live my life? And when I think about recovery and what that looks like, even if it feels out of reach right now, what do I ideally want my relationship with food and my body to look like? And if there's any element of not wanting to have it have my mind be preoccupied and be hung up on perseverative thinking around calories or weight or numbers or whatever it is of acting on the part of me that wants something else for my life. So coming from a place of, you know, if there's a meal with a loved one and it has a fear food or something that I'm really scared of eating, that there's a loved one involved and what's important to me is my relationship with that person or is spending time with this person or is, you know, celebrating this tradition with this person and eating because I'm acting from that place of that value rather than I'm acting from the place of the eating disorder or the disorder eating or diet culture, which keeps me stuck in a cycle of, of the perseverative thinking around weight, food, calories, my body. So coming from a place of what else is important to me in my life and how do I want my relationship with food and body to ultimately look like. And again, you're giving yourself plenty of room to that there are going to be mistakes along the way. So when a mistake happens, because it's not an if, when that happens, giving yourself the grace to just get back up, get back to what you were previously working on and try again. It doesn't, there's no pass fail with intuitive eating. There's no decision that you can make that's going to completely, you know, not allow you to continue in the intuitive eating process. It's just a part of the process. And if anything, the failures or the setbacks or the parts where you're going to learn the most about yourself, those are going to be the the stages or the places where you're going to learn what's most important to you or what you need to change the next time. Um, So rather than viewing it as something that's going to keep you stuck or that's taking you back to previous places of disorder behavior, it's a place for you to learn, to gather more information and kind of just to suit up again and take the next step. I was thinking when you were talking about making mistakes, like when we make mistakes, because that's very, it's very similar to 
contribute to the addiction population of relapse and yeah. that being a part of the process of recovery. And I think we, we also think of success in days. So we think of success as like, what did I eat today? Right. Uh, did I drink today? Did I right, do drugs right, today? Right. You know, you think of like in days. And I think it's also helpful, at least for me, is in my lifetime, is this going to be a big deal today? Right. And I try to expand the view a little bit. And I think that's helpful for people to think about overall, you're doing a good job. Right. And right. just because you may have had a crappy day or, you know, something that you had planned to not eat, mm-hmm. you ate mm-hmm. or you didn't eat it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just really, we are judging ourselves so harshly on the su- success of a day. Right. So and that can we can be, kind of broaden our thinking. Yeah. And that can be another way of sort of like misconstruing and manipulating intuitive eating into something that it's not, which again, it's not about, you know, a scorecard at the end of the day. It's not about you get a gold star for intuitive eating today. It's truly like one of the mm-hmm. most freeing elements of intuitive eating is like, even on the days when it, you know, quote, didn't go well, like that's still actually a, a, a day in intuitive eating. Like that's just a part of it. It doesn't, it's right. You did it. Right. You still did it. You still did it. You're if, still doing if it. If you're still eating and you're still recognizing like, Hey, this could have gone differently or, you know, this was a misstep. That's you doing it. That's not you failing. That's just you doing it. And it's, it's, hard to wrap your head around because we have that kind of mindset of like, oh, it's a failure or it's a mistake. It's really just information that we're gathering. And again, you have so many more opportunities to continue embarking on this journey, but you're still on it. Right. It's such a, I love that you brought that up because I think about all the apps and the diet trackers and things that kind of do give you the gold stars that you're like, oh, it's just completely flipping it on its head. Yes. Yeah. And it's, that's a whole new, that's like a whole paradigm shift to wrap your head around because that's a lot of, there's a letting go process in that too, of like letting go of the, I want a gold star or I want a number at the end of the day, or I want a thumbs up at the end of the day. And and you get the thumbs up just by practicing intuitive eating. It's not about doing it well or doing it not well. It's just right. doing Just it. by practicing, yeah. practice, practice exposure, exposure. Yeah. yeah. And I think we should come back and have another conversation around the there's so many reasons why people get caught up and struggle with eating or diets what have you i'm trying to be careful about my language because i just don't i mean we all have our different spectrum of the ways totally. that we've struggled with food it's really important for us to also to talk about the fear of gaining weight mm. oh my god how yeah. that has been and that's a that's another conversation for another day another day but i feel like that is an important conversation to have and molly and i touched on it as well it's just that the fat, the culture of fat phobia yeah. and what does it mean to be thin? Right. Uh, and what, what does that mean that we have to live up to these ideals of thinness or why are we fearful of right. larger bodies? It's very layered. So I think so that might be layered. Yeah. Part two. Yeah. Part two for <laughs> sure. Right. It can, it can coexist. My like really quick and dirty of it is like the desire for weight loss can coexist with working on intuitive eating. It's not an either or, but you are so right that it is extremely layered and it is, there are so many factors that contribute to that. And those conversations are often just like the tip of the iceberg when it comes to peeling back what else Mm. is going on for someone that is contributing to their ideology around a larger body and what that would be like. Yeah. Ooh, then maybe we need to talk about that too. Because when you said coexisting of weight loss and intuitive eating, because I have this idea in my head that it can't Uh, just because I, uh, yeah, it's, that's another day, but I feel like that is something Claire and I've talked about too, of just how 
that's the number one question people ask. And we're not experts in this, which is why we bring people on like you to talk about it, but is, well, I still want to lose weight though, but I don't feel like I have issues with food and it's not black and white. It's, you know, there's a lot of different people in different places. And I think that some people can do that and be just fine. But um, I think it's important that we have that discussion as well, that it doesn't have to be this black and white thinking mentality, which is what diet culture tries to do. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Way more nuanced than that. So can you give listeners uh, maybe one of your favorite resources uh, for them to learn about intuitive eating or anything else that's really important to you for resources? Yeah. Okay. So first and foremost, not surprising to anyone is the intuitive eating book from uh, Evelyn and Elise. But all jokes aside, like truly, that is that is the the Bible, as it were, of intuitive eating. Yeah, the one thing that I'll I link to it. Yeah, the one thing that I say with this book, too, that I find so like respectable, I guess, is that they first came out with the first intuitive eating you know, book and like first like launched this paradigm back in 1994 and they keep revising the book every couple of years because that's yeah. how on top of this they are like they keep modifying yes. it to There's so many versions so yeah. many versions they're modifying their language in new ways they're including new chapters they're focusing on other populations and i love that because it tells me that they're not just putting this out there kind of like a diet where it's like here it is and we just like never do it again but it works i promise just do it it's Right. No, we're actually, right. Like we're constantly evolving and kind of scrutinizing and looking at intuitive eating under a microscope. So all that aside, definitely encourage folks to check out the intuitive eating book. Um, The other book that I love for being able to really do a deep dive into the problematic um, messages of diet and wellness culture, um, the medicalization of fat phobia and weight stigma, a little bit on intuitive eating. It's not going to be so much of like, kind of, this is how you do it, but a lot of sort of uh, information that can help kind of like prepare you for battle, as it were, against diet culture is the book Anti-Diet by Christy Harrison. She's a dietitian and I think has a master's in public health. She has a podcast. She has yeah, her website. podcast is like, great. It's so great. Yeah, she's incredibly informative in that book is chock full of resources. If you really want to dive into why is the BMI problematic or why is weight not a marker of health, like that is a book that will really give you a lot of research. It's backed by research. It's backed by activists in the community. It's backed by researchers, by eating disorder professionals. I mean, she has everything laid out there. So I really recommend that book as well. Oh, that's a good one. I'm glad you mentioned that. She's amazing. Yes. Yeah. She, she really, really is. Well, Audrey, thank you so much for joining Thanks for and having just me. being our new friend on the pod. This was really cool. And I love, you know, Hey listeners, this is just a Testament. You just like put yourself out there and say, I want to come on the podcast because I have something to say. This is perfect. It- this this was great. So amazing being on here. This was definitely a, a shot in the dark. And then I realized it was happening and was like, yeah, be careful. I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> let's do it. This sounds great. I know. Um, careful what you wish no, for. This was so much I fun. I so appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much for great. having me. What a me. great conversation. Listeners, you can find us girlsgonewildpodcast.com. You can email us girlsgonewild at gmail.com. And then of course, on our other podcast, this is Joy and Claire on your Marks Gets at Bake. Give us your feedback. Let us know what you want to hear about. Let us know if you want to, if you have any questions specifically around intuitive eating, we'd love to answer them on a future episode. So send us all your questions. You can send us a message on Instagram. We are at Joy and Claire underscore. And thank you again, Audrey. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much, Joy. Bye.
like we do it, like we do it.